The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Nicholas Hammond first appeared on Broadway as the 10-year-old son of Sir Michael Redgrave and Googie Withers in Graham Greene's The Complacent Lover, winning enthusiastic praise from the New York critics. From that first footstep onto the stage of the Barrymore Theatre, Nicholas has had a lifelong love of acting, whether on stage, film or television. His global film career includes films from Lord of the Flies, directed by Peter Brook, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, directed by Quentin Tarantino, and starring in his own American primetime series, The Amazing Spider-Man. But, as he and his film siblings always say, No matter how many wonderful roles he plays, most people will always think of him as Friedrich von Trapp in the most successful film musical of all time, Rodgers and Hammerstein's The Sound of Music. It was a great treat for stages to catch up with Nicholas to reflect on his vast career as an actor, a writer and a director on stages and screens around the world. Here's my conversation with the erudite Nicholas Hammond. Good morning, Nicholas Hammond. Good morning, Peter. And welcome to Stages. Thank you. Nicholas, of course, um, you are associated with one of the most iconic families in screen history. (laughs) Tell me, what was it like being Marsha's love interest in The Brady Bunch? (laughs) (laughs) Well... I'll tell you, it was, they were big shoes to fill. I knew that she was the heartthrob of America among teenage boys. Um, look, like so many things, Peter, and you would know this yourself, when you're actually in the middle of doing something, you don't really stop and think someday this is going to become an iconic episode that will be turned into a Broadway show and that 50 years later people will stop you in the street and say, you're the one who dumped Marsha Brady, you know. But you just do it. It's a job, you know. Uh, I mean, I did feel slightly self-conscious. I remember thinking I'm the world's oldest high school student because <laughs> I, think I, was, I think I was 22 at the time. Mind you, by then I had not seen I had not seen Stockard Channing and John Travolta in Greece. So I, did, I realized I was far from the oldest high school student in the world. But um, I, I look. Brady Bunch was already a very famous show when I went on. And those kids on that show, they were household names and they were recognizable all over America. So it was one of the first times I'd walked on a show. I mean, I've done it a number of times since, you know, on shows like Dallas and other shows where you walk on and everybody on that show is already very well known to the public because the show is is an enormous success. Um, but Brady Bunch was one of the first ones where you walked on and you thought, oh, there's Alice, you know, the cook and there's mom and there's dad. And, you know, there and you knew all their names. And you thought, yes, I mean, they're kind of a part of America's fabric. I mean, you're right. I, I did a movie where we were also part of America's fabric, but or the world's fabric. But that was the first time I'd had that experience of dropping into a show as kind of immediately having to hit the ground running with a bunch of people that have been doing it for a very long time together 
and have a kind of shorthand between each other. Well, uh, um, and a similar experience at the Waltons, um, mm. I imagine, too. Yeah. That's right, yes, yes. With the, uh, the Waltons, the townie, that episode, I remember I did, and then I think I went back and did a second one playing the same character where I was, uh, again, a bit of a villain because I seem to remember I got Sissy Spacek pregnant uh, and she was the girl that, that John Boy was in love with. So I was the rich kid in the fancy car who kind of, you know, was their nemesis. But needless to say, I got my comeuppance and the, and the, and the fine family of the Waltons, you know, they prevailed in the end. Of course, I'm teasing. Um, that, that was a lovely insight, but I am getting around to... Uh, the Sound of Music, of course, uh, cinema's most successful musical, in which you played Friedrich von Trapp, mm -hmm. um, and the film starred Julie Andrews. And you're about to return to the stage in another musical, which is associated mm -hmm. with Julie Andrews. That's right. I um, I uh, I got a lovely e uh, email from from Julie when, and she knows I'm doing it, and and she's the one that said, "Well, it's sort of come full circle now," um, because. You're right, after she finished My Fair Lady in New York and before she started it in London, uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote this musical for her, which was done on live television, which was extraordinary in those days. Uh, you know, a two hour show without any breaks, live TV, anything could happen, anything could go wrong of having to move the cameras around. I think it had only been done once before and that was with Mary Martin on Peter Pan. And this was the first, but this show was actually written for a television appearance. Peter Pan was originally written for the stage and then they, they televised it. Uh, this was specifically written for television. And yes, the score, the, act, the actual score that we use now at the Lyric Theatre in Sydney, that is the score that Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote for that television special. There are a couple of extra Rodgers and Hammerstein songs that have been put into the stage musical. And, um, and there's a new book written for it. It's not It's not the same book that was in the musical when Julie did it. I mean, for instance, that was a much more traditional Cinderella. Uh, ours is a little bit more, um, uh, a kind of a little bit left of centre in the sense that the character of Ella, the girl, uh, is much more empowered. She's not just simply somebody sitting there waiting for a prince to rescue her. She has a very proactive role in the show and she's very involved with kind of, you know, the plight of the poor and the plight of the oppressed. And I'm the nemesis because I've been keeping the prince in a in a gilded cage and hiding from him all the corruption and all the venality that I've been indulging in. And, you know, it, uh, I started out as a very good man and the prince was entrusted to me by his parents when they died, but power corrupts. And, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that, that's kind of what my character represents. Of course, a lot of social and historical developments since uh, that television special in 1957. Mm -hmm. the, the Broadway debut of this, this new production was uh, 2013, I think, indeed right. with a, a book by Douglas Carter Bean. That, that's right, Peter. And actually, I, I give enormous credit to uh, Douglas Carter Bean for the success of this production, for the fact that audiences find it a very uh, rewarding uh, theatrical experience. They're not coming to watch a pantomime. Uh, you know, it, it, there's an actual play in there. I mean, Douglas is a, is a really first-rate New York Broadway playwright, and he's, he's written a solid play within the structure of the Cinderella myth and the music of Rodgers and Hammerstein, which is no small feat. But I think the reviews we've gotten and the audience reaction we've gotten is largely thanks to that book of Douglas Carter Beans. Well, obviously, uh, through our, our pre-early conversation, you have played yeah. the villain before. You've upset Marsha, Brady <laughs> and Sissy Spacek. Uh, but the villains are the best characters to play, though, aren't they? Always, always. And that's what most people don't realise. They're not only the most fun to play, but usually they've got the best, it's the best role. The hero is often the least interesting character. I mean, look no further than Shakespeare. You know, uh, everyone wants to play Mercutio. No one wants to play Romeo. Mm. <laughs> and that's pretty much true down the line, you know. And, uh, but, well, of course, because, because usually the hero is someone who has things happen to him, whereas the villain is the proactive one. Mm. And that's always much more fun to do. During the, the Sound of Music experience, did you have, a, have the opportunity to meet Richard Rogers or Oscar Hammerstein? 
I met them. I met them briefly while we were making the film, and then I I got to know Mary Rogers quite well later on. Um, the man who was president of Rogers and Amstein for many years is a close friend of mine, Ted Chapin. He's also the president of the Tony Awards. And through Ted, we, we did a number of Sound of Music events uh, over the years, as you can imagine, you know, reunions and publicity and junkets for the film. And, uh, you know, every time there'd be a new release, we'd, they'd haul us all out to do something. And very often Mary Rogers was there. She she supervised that company very uh, closely once her husband had died and once Oscar Hammerstein had died. And uh, so I, I, oddly enough, I got to know him, Hammerstein, that is much better in retrospect. Uh, when I was asked to do a, a, a documentary for the BBC, I went to the uh, archives at the at the Library of Congress in Washington, where the Oscar Hammerstein and Richard Rogers uh, archive is. And it was completely fascinating. I looked through all the yellow lined pads of all the rough drafts of songs they wrote, of all the lyrics that got rejected. Terribly funny. I mean, there's something like 12 versions of my favorite things before they actually come to the list of things that are in the. I mean, we had, you know, snow bearded kings and white bearded kings and, you know, all, all kinds of anything that would rhyme with I-N-G-S. And, uh, and, and every word in the in the English language, I think. And, but I think he finally hit on the right ones. But it was interesting to see the process they went through. But it, it didn't just appear by magic. It was bloody hard work getting every single one of those songs right. Um, this afternoon, I'm going down to collect uh, my book on Mary Rogers, Shy, which has just been yes. released. I can't yes, wait. I I've yeah. got one ordered. I've got one ordered. And I've, I hear it's really a good read. I've read several reviews about it. Yeah. And uh, yes, it is. And of course, I've forgotten that she wrote uh, Once Upon a Mattress with Peter Houston, that of they course. wrote it together. And that kind of was her claim to fame. And, and uh, I mean, she did other things as well. But I mean, that play is still done all the time. It's done at universities and schools and you should do it at Skaggs. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And the mother of Adam Gattel, who continues to write for that's the right. music theatre as well. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And the other slight connection I had with her was um, uh, one of her close collaborators, and I think someone she was extremely fond of, was an American uh, a director and, and theatre maker named Marshall Baer. And Marshall, actually, when I was at Princeton, at the Triangle Club at Princeton, which is a theatrical society, Marshall came and directed two of the musicals we did there. And I didn't realize, I mean, obviously he was much older then, but I didn't realize that he and he and Mary Rogers had known each other since they were teenagers and were very, very, very close friends. Now, Nicholas, you were born in Washington, D.C. I was. I was. Um, I'm, I'm an army brat. And uh, my father was at the Pentagon. We, they just, my parents had just returned from Paris, where my father had been the military attaché at the embassy. And he came back to the Pentagon. Uh, and we had a few years in Washington. And that's when I was born. And then we went back to Paris. And my father had another position also at the embassy when they went back. So, But I was indeed born in Washington. It's definitely my hometown. It's where my brother and sister-in-law and niece live and it's where my mother lives still to this day and uh, at 103. But um, so she, so although my mother's English and was an English actress, she sort of now has become more American than English in the sense that she's lived in America for 70 years. Wow. Yeah, of course. Mm. Um, I was delighted to read that she was uh, described as Britain's new screen star in 1942. <laughs> That's right. She was. Well, in fact, that's true. I mean, and she also, which I find a fascinating piece of information, she was the very first announcer back in the days when they used to have announcers on the BBC television, where in the 1939, there was a very short period before the war broke out where they actually started broadcasting television just in the greater London area. And my mum, who was maybe 20 at the time or 21, straight out of RADA, and she would be the girl on the screen that would say, and at six o'clock, we will have the news. And at seven o'clock, we will have play of the week. And at eight, <laughs> we will have, you know, something else. And, and that was her job. And that was one of her very, and then she also did a, an awful lot of radio. My mother had a very, very good voice.
and and also did Marsnicker on Lace on the West End for two years. So she had quite an interesting career. Oh. Yeah, she she did Marsnicker, and that's how my father met her. He saw her on stage in the play. She was playing one of the younger characters at that yeah, stage. She was I, playing, I think I think the character's name is Elaine, and I think she's supposed to be like the niece or the granddaughter or that's something right. of the two elderly ladies. And uh, for some reason, she's there in the house with them. I can't, can't remember the circumstances. And she has a fiance, and you know, and then of course the succession of men who all get bumped off. Uh, Can you recall the stage doyens who were playing Arsenic and Old Lace? One was a, a lady named. They were both dames, and one was Dame Lillian Braithwaite, and the other was Dame Mary Gerald. I believe J E double R O L D. And of course, they were very well-known actresses of their day. But I mean, this is—they probably had their heyday, you know, around the time of the First World War, and and they were quite old now. And um, so, uh, but but they had a following. I mean, as I say, the play ran two and a half years with, during the Blitz, which is pretty amazing. They never stopped. They went right through the war. And um, in fact, my mother, I believe, left the play before it was even finished. It had ended the run to marry my father. So, uh, so yes, it, she was in a, a big smash hit on the West End, which I think got her through the war. Yeah. And, and funnily enough, it actually saved her life because at one performance when there was a raid, she went back to her apartment afterwards and there was a bomb crater in the ground where her apartment had been. So if she hadn't been on stage, that would have been the end of her. And because uh, her dog was killed, the apartment was gone, everything wow. was gone. There was just a hole in there. Wow. So theatre saved her life. There you go. <laughs> well, theatre has saved many lives, I suspect. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and starring on film with with George, George Formby and, and Charles Hawtrey in it. That's right. Yes, she did. A film called Much Too Shy, which now has a whole cult following of its own. Um, uh, she she did that film because obviously George Formby was enormously popular during the war, but that particular film, for some reason, yes, and Charles Hawtrey's in it and a few other actors and actresses that were very well known then. And my mother still gets requests every year to appear at the George Formby convention in Blackpool, where apparently 8,000 people with ukuleles descend. <laughs> <laughs> and, Finally enough, I recently met an English director out here in Sydney who was directing a, another show that they asked me to do that I can't talk about yet because we haven't said yes. But he, he was talking about George Formby because he had the job of not this latest uh, 70th Jubilee, but when the Queen had her 60th Jubilee, uh, which was obviously 10 years ago, um, he had the job to be the director of it. And he said the one piece of, of, of directive he got from the palace was make sure you've got at least one George Formby number in there because that's the Queen's favorite. He got an entire ukulele orchestra <laughs> to all play a couple of George Formby numbers. So, yeah, so, so I guess that's why one of the reasons that film was so popular is because it was, you know, the royal family loved those films. Wonderful, um, wonderful. And then another fascinating film that will that turns up from time to time on YouTube, it's like that, called Thursday's Child, which is about a rivalry between two sisters, Sally Ann Howes and my mother. And Stuart Granger is my mother's boyfriend. And my mother is desperate to become an actress. And Sally Ann Howes, her younger sister, couldn't care less. And Sally Ann Howes gets cast in a movie. And of course, my mother has to deal with the just insane jealousy she feels that her sister, who just had it fall into her lap, whereas my mother plays a character who's just constantly auditioning, constantly trying, trying to meet agents, trying to meet directors, and nothing's happening for her. And here's this younger sister of hers that just had some casting director say, you, you'd be good, you know. <laughs> And I mean, I think that's a condition that exists today. Uh, Sally Ann Howes, of course, Julie Andrews, great understudy. That's right. She was. She was. Yeah. And, a, and a very good singer in her own right. You know, I think, my, I, in fact, I seem to remember my, that Mum and Julie talked about that when we were doing Sound of Music because they had a few people where there were connections. Uh, also, one of our nuns in Sound of Music was Anna Lee, 
And my mother had worked with Anna Lee in London when she was a young actress. So there were all, there were a few kind of guidelines, uh, you know, cross wires there that connected us all. And um, and yeah, and of course, Julia always asks about my mother every time I, I saw her at the American Film Institute Awards in June, uh, where she got the Lifetime Achievement. And I, I was lucky enough to be asked to be the presenter. And and we had a big chat afterwards. And she still asks about my mother, which is lovely of her. So did marriage um, uh, mean the retirement of your mother from the stage and, and screen? It kind of did, yes. I think she did a little bit afterwards. But you see, uh, again, having married my father, he was almost, was at this point, when, as soon as the war ended, uh, he was on Eisenhower's staff throughout the war. But as soon as the war ended, he resumed his diplomatic position at the embassy in Paris. So they immediately moved to Paris. And she basically had a full-time job as the wife of the senior American diplomat, military attache diplomat. So, you know, there was a lot of entertaining. There was a lot of, you know, things that you have to do as the wife of a diplomat. And she slotted into that role and basically kind of did that from then on. She has admitted in later life that she really missed it a lot. She was very kind of stoic about it. And, you know, she had my brother and she had me and you know, she was occupied with that. And I don't think she's ever regretted for a moment that. But she has said recently that, that you know, finally now she's admitted, I wish I could have had a few more years because she was getting lots of offers. And, you know, she would have had a major career. Mm. Yeah. And of course, I would have loved it if she had, but then I probably wouldn't be here. <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. And um, maybe she was that allowed her to to uh, recognize and nurture in you the burgeoning talent which was was happening yeah. from very well. well I, I think years. there's something there. I mean, I you know, my my mother never pushed me into doing what I've done all my life, nor nor of course did my father, but but she never discouraged me. And I think what she did was she showed by example, you know, that you can have a very positive, very happy, very um, productive life in the theater and in movies, if, you know, with, with the right attitude. And I mean, all of her friends seemed to be people who were constantly laughing and constantly telling stories and full of, you know, in the old fashioned meaning of the word gaiety and, you know, and loved life. And as a little boy, I, I used to love it when we would go and visit my mother's actor friends because they were just always really fun to be around. And they didn't treat me like a little boy who's inconsequential. You know, they included me in everything they were doing, which of course I just loved. And I think that was one of the reasons I really, really, really loved when I started working myself I love the fact that even if you're 10 years old or 12 years old, you're given the same responsibility as everyone else. And I love that. You know, I loved, I did a play on Broadway with Michael Redgrave and Googie Withers and playing their son. And there was no kind of allowance made for the fact that I was 11. You know, I was expected to know my lines as well as they were. I was expected to remember my blocking. I was expected to know my cues and I was, expected to know how to you know wait for the laughs and, and ride the laughs and come in with the next line I mean you know they didn't say oh well you're a little boy it doesn't matter if you get it right or not no 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 there was none of that and I I think I really took to that very very early on so the, the calling to be an actor do you, do you think that uh, is genetic you know you inherited that from your mother or it was being exposed to all those wonderful people and you thought well, oh, it's, be part of that it's, it's nature versus nurture isn't it I, yeah, yeah. I, I don't answer that actually I mean I really don't I, I, I don't know if there is something genetic as I say the, the clear memory I have is just that it seemed like a wonderful life I mean obviously as a child I didn't know there's always a downside and there yeah. can be a dark side and there can be all that but her particular friends didn't give off that vibe they gave off the vibe of and mind you most of them had just been through the war so they had an awful lot to be happy about. They were alive and they'd survived and they were getting on with it. And uh, all those things I think I picked up on one way or another. So 1961, as a, a 10 or 11 year old, you make your Broadway debut in The mm. Complacent Lover by Graham Greene. 
How does that happen for a 10-year-old that you, you're on Broadway at 10? What was the audition process? How did you hear about the play? Were you, well, were you with an agent? Okay, well, I can answer it in two words. Peter Brook. I had just made Lord of the Flies, where I was a rank amateur, and they were just calling for rank amateurs. He actually didn't want professional children. He wanted a- amateur kids. And I heard they were auditioning these children. And as I just said, because I'd sort of seen, had this example from my mother and her friends and it looked like a good life. So when I saw that they were auditioning boys to come in for Lord of the Flies, I did. And I asked my parents if I could, and they said yes. And they flew me up to New York and I screen tested for Mr. Brooke and I did the movie. And I came home and thought, well, that was a wonderful summer, you know, in the Caribbean and huge fun. And I had a great time. And now I'm going back to school. And it wasn't more than a couple of weeks. I'm just trying to remember. Yes, because we finished we finished Lord of the Flies probably in either late August, early September. And by October, by right around this time of the year, uh, we got a phone call from a Broadway, quite a famous Broadway producer named Irene Selznick, uh, who was David O. Selznick's daughter, I mean, ex-wife, uh, Louis B. Mayer's daughter. And um, she had our phone number because she had rung up Peter Brook. And she they'd been looking for a boy to play Sir Michael Redgrave's son all summer, and they couldn't find a boy in New York they liked uh, and who could do the accent properly. And she rang up Peter Brook and said, well, you've just worked with 30 of them. You know, who do you recommend? And I think he recommended a couple of us. I don't think I was the only one, but I think he recommended a couple. And stage at the Barrymore Theatre, I'd never stood on a stage in my life before. Uh, but I walked on stage at the Barrymore Theatre and the stage manager was read the scene with me. I, I, I guess they'd sent me the scene or I, we went up the night before and I, because I knew I knew it by the time I went out there. And, um, and I read the scene. The stage manager was playing, you know, the role of the father. And there's one rather long scene in the play between the son and the father and did the scene. And Irene Selznick turned to my mother and said, you know, how soon can you move to New York? And that's how that happened. So without Mr. Brooke, I probably would have just gone back to school and that would have been that. I would have been like all those other boys who had been in Lord of the Flies who never worked again. Um, So my life has been one of extraordinary and fortunate coincidences. Uh, And that probably was the first major one. And then an agent from the William Morris Agency saw me in that play. I was signed with William Morris. I stayed with them for 35 years. And... It was through the William Morris Agency that I got the audition for The Sound of Music. Because by then I was working in television in New York. I was going to the professional children's school in New York. I had become a professional child actor. But it was that moment really of first walking out on the stage at the Barrymore. And I remember they kept, I was so fascinated by the flies up above and these ropes just seemed to go up forever into the sky and all the kind of drop cloths that were hanging up there. And it all just looked so, and I kept sort of saying to the stage manager, what's that for? And what does that do? And what does that rope do? And he kept saying, let's just think about the scene here. Let's just do the scene. So in a way it was kind of great because I completely forgot, you know, the director was a very well-known English director named Sir Val May and Irene Selznick and, you know, all the New York casting people, they were all sitting out in the audience. And I think I just kind of got so fascinated by this world up on this stage. And I have to admit, I walk out on the Lyric Theatre stage, I'm just as fascinated. It hasn't ever changed. It hasn't changed. And I loved it when we were in Melbourne and I took my breath away because at the Regent Theatre in Melbourne, it's still what they we they called a hemp house. It still has real ropes, not steel cables, actual ropes hanging in the side. And you think, oh, this is the way theaters have been since, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years since Sarah yeah. Siddons was on the stage. And full of the ghosts of the past. Of, well, of, that's right. I yeah. love all that. I just love all of that. 
and where other other casts have signed bits of scenery and walls backstage and their casts from 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago. Uh, it just makes you feel you're part of a part of a tribe. Smell of the crowd, the roar of the grease paint. That's exactly <laughs> it. Of course, um, a couple of decades later, after The Complacent Lover, you work with Googie Withers again mm. and John yes. McCullum in The Cocktail Hour by A.R. Right. Yes. Gurney, the wonderful Googie, um, an autobiographical play imagining a confrontation with uh, his parents about playwriting. You, of course, have become a, a writer. Um, yeah. When did that take off? Um, look, it, it was a strange sort of evolution because I, I was doing an awful lot of television. And quite often I would find myself when I would be going over a script that I had to learn for a show I was doing, quite often I'd find myself sort of fiddling with a line here and there. And I would never change anything without asking permission from the director. But quite often what I would do is I would go in and you know just quietly rewrite the scene myself. And I'd go to the director and I'd say, look, um, I'll do it the way it's written but may I then also try it this other way? And it was starting to happen that kind of like nine times out of 10, the way I'd written it would be the way they'd say, oh, that's, that's better, that's much better. And um, I know we have a connection between Difficult Woman, but kind of what led to Difficult Woman, which was at the ABC, was I was doing an ABC miniseries called Frankie's House. And uh, it was about, Vietnam and about war correspondence in Vietnam, and I played the American officer who had to give the uh, who had to give the news conference every day. And finally, I have sort of a breakdown because I realize this this is just these are lies that I'm telling these reporters every day. And we kind of you had a scene of me just being absolutely straight and giving the news conference, and then you had a scene of me kind of drunk in a bar in a Hawaiian shirt because I've blown it and I've been fired by the army. And I went to the producer who was a, a great ABC producer named Sue Masters. And I said, Sue, I think we're just missing a beat here because we don't see what happened to him. We don't see why he's made the decision, you know, to risk ruining his career because he's just not going to lie any, any further. All we see is the result of it. And Sue said, write it. And I think secretly she was thinking, Oh, yeah, another wise-ass actor who thinks he knows better. Go ahead. You prove you can do it. Well, I wrote the scene, uh, quite a long scene. Ironically enough, with another actor by the name of Steve Weidler, who I then went and co-wrote A Difficult Woman with. And we shot it. And she, I, she read it. She said, we'll shoot it tomorrow. And it was such a thrill for me to be in a scene and hear both myself, but particularly the other actors speak words that I had invented. So, so Steve Beidler and I, who oddly enough were right after that, went and toured in a, in a play with Ruth Cracknell, a Neil Simon play. Uh, Lost in Yonkers. Mm. That's right. And we, um, while we were on tour, you know, we said, let's write something, you know. And so I came up with the idea for a difficult woman and I kind of wrote the outline for it but then together we wrote the dialogue for the whole series and we sold it to Southern Star and we sold it to the ABC and that was the first thing I did that was the first and then we won some awards for it and then I wrote another one called Secret Men's Business for the ABC again and since then I've just written it's always been something I, I do and during COVID of course it was a godsend because there was nothing else going on so yeah but oddly enough, that, that's how it all started, was um, writing a scene for a, a, a miniseries called Frankie's House. I feel quite chuffed to be in your uh, debut you screenplay. Were, you were in the very first screenplay I ever wrote. You absolutely oh. were. And the character of Evans was an important one. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. There were no small roles. <laughs> there are no small roles. Listen, as, Qu as Quentin Tarantino said to me, and I think this is why you are the genius you are, he said, you know, whenever I direct the scene, whatever two people or three people are in that scene, even if they've got one line and that's their only line in the whole movie, he said, for that scene, they are the star of my movie. And that's the way he treats them. 
And that's the way he treats everybody in every scene. And I think that's the secret to his magic that he gets performance-wise out of actors, you know? So you're right. There are no so there are no small roles. Julie Andrews, Peter Brook, Quentin Tarantino. Um, there's a book there that I I want to read, Nicholas. Have you thought about writing an autobiography? I, I have been asked to do it, and and somehow I've tried a couple of times, and I I get overcome with self consciousness that I feel a bit um, shy because it just all sounds like boasting, and I haven't found a way in yet. I'm trying. I love the books that Dirk Bogart wrote. I thought he managed to do it in a really clever way where he revealed a great deal about his own career, but it never sounded like, and then I did, and then I did, and then I did. Those are the books that don't interest me at all. I also, interestingly enough, when we were doing Cinderella up in Brisbane, because one has time on one's hands during the day, I read Brando's autobiography. And that was a very, very good example. So I'm getting closer. I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I think I'm going to need someone to work on it with me, though. I think I'm going to need somebody to keep me, keep my nose to the grindstone on it. But I, I think there is a book there. I mean, I've had a very fortunate life. And I, I've worked with the most amazing people, you know. I mean, in fact, John Frost pointed out to me, because he knows everything about the theatre. He said, do you realise... Julie Andrews, Walter Pigeon, and Celeste Holm were all in the original production of Cinderella, and you've done plays or movies with all of them. And I thought, oh, for God's sake, so I have. <laughs> there were probably a few more in that company as well if I went down the whole cast list. But uh, I have. I've, I've worked with, you know, unbelievable people. Really, when you think... My career has spanned everyone from Basil Rathbone to Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, that's a pretty wide expanse. And um, I'm very grateful. I, I just, I have had, a, you know, a remarkable run. So it keeps um, going. Just listening to you now reminds me of Frank Langella's autobiography, yeah. Dropped Names. Have you read that? Where, no. where each chapter is about a particular um, iconic person that he knew or worked with, and then oh, um, his his life history is is wound around that particular episode. So yeah, oh, that's 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 not a bad idea. That's not a bad approach, actually. Yeah. Yes. So think think about that. Think about that. I will. <laughs> so yes. the tra the transition from child actor to adult actor was that an easy one for you? It wasn't hard because. I had a wonderful agent at William Morris. Ed only represented two child actors. He represented Patty Duke and me. And he said, and in fact, that's one of the reasons I begged my mother that we would sign with him because when we went into his office to meet, he had a little picture of Patty on his desk and I had just seen The Miracle Worker and I had just seen her and I thought she was absolutely wonderful. I mean, between her and Hayley Mills, you know, they both gave me confidence that you don't have to be an adult in order to act. I saw Haley Mills in Whistle Down the Wind and Tiger Bay, and I saw Patty Duke in The Miracle Worker. And I think I was probably nine at the time myself. And I thought, well, if they can do it, I can do it. You know, yeah. I don't have to wait until I'm grown up. I can do it now. And there was a picture of Patty. And I said to my mother, I want, I want to be with this man because he represents Patty Duke. But this is all a long way of answering your question, because he said the advice he gave to Patty was, which he said, I'll give to you. He said, when you get to be about 17 or 18, walk away, go to university, do whatever else you're going to do, and then come back at 21 or 22 as an adult and start again. Start again at, at, right at ground zero. Don't try to just live off your career as a child actor come back as a grown-up actor. And so that is exactly what I did. I went to Princeton uh, for four years. I did a couple of little jobs while I was at Princeton, but they were grown-up jobs. They weren't child actor jobs. I did a little movie called with Raul Julia and Bruce Davison called Been Down So Long It Looks Like Up To Me, which I'd forgotten I was in until Quentin re reminded me. Um, <laughs> and then I did, a, I did a, a, a play on Broadway my senior year there, but by then it was fine. I did a play called Conduct Unbecoming back at the same theater, at the Barrymore Theater where I'd been before. 
but in a much better dressing room. <laughs> and um, uh, so I did that. And then as soon as I graduated, I flew to Los Angeles and I, I had gotten a job in a Charlton Heston movie called Skyjacked. So it had, that, those were, that was work I did that was in no way given to me because of my success as a child. Those were jobs I got as a grown-up actor. So I kind of felt with Skyjack particularly because it was a big MGM movie and it was Charlton Heston and Yvette Mimieux and Gene Crane and, you know, big movie stars and Walter Pidgeon. Uh, I kind of felt, well, this is it. I'm starting a new career now. I'm starting an, or another phase of my career. I was 21, you know, and then I started doing a lot of guest spots on television and, you know, working with, you know, directors like Steven Spielberg and, you know, these young, these young guys who were just starting out themselves. And so, it, you know, it was Hollywood in the early 70s. And it was, you know, it was very much the world of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It was, it was a very exciting time to be 21 years old in Hollywood, because it was kind of like if, if everything was possible. You know, I mean, if, you know, if Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda can make a movie, anybody can make a movie, you know, and these guys were coming down out of the hills with long hair and beards like George Lucas and Spielberg and guys like that, you know, and they were getting they were getting work. So it, it's like all the old rules were gone and there was a whole new set of rules coming into place. And people were just kind of making it up as they went along. And I, I, I was lucky that I was kind of right at the beginning of all that. So to answer your question, Peter, no, it wasn't that hard because I didn't try. I didn't try. And I think it would have been hard. You know, I mean, I think if I'd been sort of 17 and still trying to play 14 year olds or whatever, uh, but I didn't. And I think that's where some child actors get into trouble. You know, well, I think it messes with their heads. Well, that was very sage advice from from your agent, and I mm. suspect that's exactly what Daniel Radcliffe has done. Um, yeah, I think so. He, he stepped away for a while, and yeah. it is advice. It is advice I've given to uh, to other child actors. Well, you know, if I have, uh, I mean, I worked with a very very talented girl in Ladies in Black uh, and Gary Rice, and you know, and I said, finish your education, finish school if you want to go to university university go to university and she did after ladies in black she took time off now she's just started to come back but you know ladies in black was maybe five years ago now so she did that i think she was in kind of year 11 when she did that and then she just stopped and now she's come back i've saw her in this thing called the gray man she was marvelous in it but you know she's come back as a woman she's not a little girl anymore and so she missed that awkward transition and you're right. It is. I, I have a feeling that's exactly what Daniel Radcliffe's done. And I don't know about the uh, uh, and probably Emily Watson as well. I'm not sure what mm. she's. Been, uh, is that her name? The girl from from Harry from Potter? Harry Potter. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. Emily. Yeah, yeah. Emily Watson. No, somebody. Somebody Watson. Emma. Emma Watson. Emma Watson. There is an Emily Watson who's yes, an older, yes. slightly older actress. Yeah, and. Um, uh, I'm the only person on face of the planet who's never seen a Harry Potter film. Oh, there's fact, two of us. There's two oh. of us. And I haven't read a book either. No, I had to confess that to David Heyman, who produced Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, when I found out he was the man who first discovered J.K. Rowling and first got the first film option on the first Harry Potter book. And he's produced every Harry Potter film since. <laughs> and I had to say, David, I just have to be honest with you. But he forgave. He, he's fine. We're not. We don't have to worry about it. <laughs> um, it's on my. It's on my well, list of things to do, but, uh, largely because of the, <laughs> the the great cast of old English actors. Yeah. Well. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. I mean, everybody's in it. In fact, I think you must. If you're an English actor and you haven't gotten a job on a Harry Potter or an episode of The Crown, you must really be starting to think there must be something wrong with me. <laughs> 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 I mean. Who hasn't worked on those shows? You yeah, know? or the or the bill, <laughs> or the bill. Oh yeah, that's right. The, the bill, or um, what's the one that's run for five thousand years? EastEnders. Mm, mm, mm. I actually was. I was actually in London once. I was oddly enough doing a, a promo for The Sound of Music when we had a, a scrapbook come out that the. The, the seven children did a Sound of Music scrapbook, which was sold very well, and and the um, the publishers had. 
two of us go over, Heather Menzies and myself, and they took us to dinner at the Ivy when we'd finished this kind of little tour all around the British Isles. And there was all this excitement at the other side of the restaurant with these people clustered around an extremely elderly lady sitting at a, at a booth with, you know, and obviously from the buzz, you could tell the waiters and everybody knew who she was. And, and I said to one of the people with us, the public, who, who is the, the um, elderly lady there? And she said, she is the last remaining original cast member of Coronation Street. And she started out playing the young girl and she went right through until now she's playing the great grandmother. So it's the only job she's had her entire life is being on Coronation Street. I don't imagine that. Well, the mousetrap's pretty much the same, I suppose. Yes. I'm sure there's some actors who, who started out playing the young girl on the mousetrap and ended up playing the old magistrate, you know? <laughs> It's, I'm, I'm fascinated by the discipline of those actors who who do do those long multi-decade runs in in television series as a particular character. Yeah, I, 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 me too. I, I don't know how they do it. I mean, people tend to look down their nose at soaps, but believe me, I did three months on on a General Hospital. It's the hardest work I've ever done. Right. I mean, it's just mentally exhausting. You know, you shoot an entire script in one day. You have to not only learn the lines, learn all the blocking, do a dress rehearsal, and then shoot the whole thing for the cameras, usually without stopping. Or if you stop, it's, you know, it's not, it's not well received. You are mentally exhausted by the end of the day. You go back to your dressing room at about seven o'clock at night and start taking off your makeup and bang, you hear the sound of tomorrow's script being dropped outside your door. And you know you have to do it all over again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. I, I really, honestly, I just, I, I mean, three months, I, I couldn't do anymore. So I, I do, I have great respect for them. I mean, I know they learn all the tricks about, you know, reading teleprompters over people's shoulders and things like that, but still, it's still a huge, it's still a huge task. So yeah, there is a huge discipline to that, I think. Just being in any series, it's just the sheer hours are so long. Uh, I mean, you work, I've done a lot of them, and the hours you work are so incredibly long. It's worse for the women, because they're usually called for makeup and hair an hour before the men. I mean, unless you've got prosthetics or something. And so, you know, their day often starts at 4.30 in the morning and it ends at, you know, 7, 8 o'clock at night. And that means they've left home at 3.30 in the morning. You know, it's just, it's, it's just killing. I mean, that's why you get paid a lot of money because honestly, you're earning it. You really are. Um, so, but nonetheless, everyone loves it and you do it, you know. And then you have breaks, of course, and then you have time when you have time off and you think I'll never work again <laughs> until the next job comes. Well, you are working so again with, just, with Cinderella. I am. How long since you've been on a stage? Actually, it's been a while. I was just thinking about that. I had lunch with a great friend of mine, Bruce Beresford, yesterday. And I think the last time I was on stage, I actually can't quite remember. But I think I'm uh, doing a play called Moonlight Magnolias, for Bruce at the, at the Melbourne Theatre Company. But that has to be a good 10 years ago. Yeah, so yeah. I really haven't. And of course, I never thought I'd do a musical, ever, because I don't sing and I don't dance. And I have, I mean, I can sing a tiny bit and I do a tiny bit of singing in this. I do a bit of, you know, warbling. But, but I mean, I sing chorally with the others and I'm, I'm not a trained dancer. So I do a tiny bit of movement to music, but it's not, I wouldn't call it dancing by, by a long shot. But um, there just aren't that many roles, principal roles, starring roles in musicals for actors who don't sing or dance. And uh, I mean, even Henry Higgins, you know, he's got two big numbers. He's got a custom to her face and why kind of woman, you know, and, you know, you pretty much got to be able to sing. You can, if you're Rex Harrison, talk your way through them. But I think they expect you to sing. Um, and But when John Frost called me and he said, you don't have to sing, you don't have to dance, you know, but it's a great acting role. So it's a privilege for me 
to be amongst those people because they are so gifted. And I feel I've got the best seat in the house. I'm out on the stage with them while they're doing extraordinary dancing and extraordinary singing. And I, it, it's a joy. Eight times a week, it's a joy. Are you superstitious in the theatre? A bit. Yeah. I won't whistle in the dressing right. room. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I am superstitious. I don't like people coming into my room after the half-hour call, uh, except the dresser. Uh, you know, I don't mind having lots of people come in the room before the half, but after the half, it's it's a quiet space, you know, and I, I don't like it. The dresser is fine because she's invisible. I mean, she knows how to be invisible, you know, and she's part of the, she's part of the show, uh, but. Um, but not visitors, you know, and and that super, uh, that's a bit of a superstition for me. Yeah, I, I don't have huge ones, but the whistling, the whistling's one. Yeah, um, right. And you know, these days no one wears a hat, so you don't have to worry about somebody throwing a hat on your on your couch or your bed. Uh, but that's about it, really. I, I uh, yeah, and I mean, I suppose it's a form of superstition, the ritual of the warm up before each show, because. I mean, it's silly because on a matinee day, you don't really need a warm-up for the second show, but I do it anyway, uh, just because I'm always worried if I don't, you know, there'll be a difference in the performance and I won't be quite, I won't be quite as sharp as if I do do it. Uh, I also, oh, well, I mean, I do have, I do have a few, I guess. Now that we I think of it. Little, <laughs> now that I think of it. I have a couple of little trinkets that I always put on my makeup table that are like gifts I've been given on other shows in years gone by. Uh, and I always keep the script on the table. I, I always, I mean, even if I don't look at it, I have it there because it's just a security blanket. I don't ever want to think, oh my God, what's that line in the scene coming up? What is it? What is it? I want to know it's there and I can find it if I need to. And obviously in the first few performances you do you check the you check the script to make sure you, you i mean look we've been off cinderella for five weeks now so when we go back uh next week i'll have that script there in fact i'll probably read the whole play again the night before we start rehearsals just to get it all fresh in my mind again uh but yeah that's that's about it rehearsal uh, uh superstition wise yeah <laughs> Well, thanks, Nicholas. Um, Chookers for um, for opening night. Um, you're Thank at the Lyric, you, Lyric I, Theatre I, I, in Sydney. That's right. Well, good. Yeah. Well, I'll see you opening night. Yeah, and please, Nicholas, please get to work on that autobiography. Okay. Well, you've inspired me now. I'll think about it. In fact, I'll think about it today. I have a little office here, and I might just go out and scribble a few notes. Make a few notes. So That'd be lovely. Thanks, Nicholas. Bye. Thank you. Really nice talking to you. Bye bye. Cinderella plays the Lyric Theatre in Sydney from October 23rd. For tickets, go to cinderellamusical.com.au. It is a beautiful show with a stellar cast that includes Tina Bursell, Ainsley Mallam, Sylvie Palladino, Shrubshree Kandia, and my guest today, Nicholas Hammond. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. And also subscribe to the podcast with Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or from wherever you find your favourite podcasts. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time, you know where, on Stages.